from the Sydney Opera House. Welcome to It's a Long Story. This is a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas, and my name is Mark Fennell. Well, I'm Shashi Tharoor. I think what I wanted to do as a child kept changing. I was inspired by a grandfather who felt I should be in government. Author, politician and former international civil servant, Sashi Tharoor is a man of many talents. He spent nearly 29 years at the United Nations as a peacekeeper and refugee worker, culminating as Undersecretary General. He's published 16 books, won numerous literary awards and was named by the 1998 World Economic Forum in Davos as a global leader of tomorrow. Currently, Sashi is serving his second term as Congress MP in India and spent his childhood between Great Britain and India. Sashi, welcome to the show. Sashi, firstly, just take me back, right? What kind of kid were you like growing up? I was a bit studious. Uh, part of the reason was I was asthmatic. Theoretically, one never quite loses it, but I've more or less outgrown the West. But when I was a kid, I was wheezing with asthma every week. I was born in London. And when we moved to India, I think something about the climate or the pollens or whatever just didn't agree. And I was sick all the time. So that meant that while I fancied myself a cricketer and so on, I really wasn't healthy enough to go out and spend as much time playing with my friends as I'd like to. And because I was confined to to bed struggling to breathe, I read a lot. And when I ran out of books to read, I wrote a lot. Do you remember the first time you wrote something that somebody else read and went, that's actually quite impressive? That I can tell you exactly. I wrote my first short story when I was six years old and my dad had it typed up by his secretary so it could be shown to friends. Mm. It's all very derivative stuff. It was sort of my attempts to Indianize Enid Blyton stories that I was reading. And How does one Indianize Enid Blyton? So I want to know all about this. Instead of the famous five and the five found out I had, I think, the um, solvers is what I call them, the solvers on the trail. And they went off, as I was doing every year as a child, to uh, our ancestral village in Kerala and, and solved mysteries there. Very innocuous little mysteries. I, you know, unfortunately, um, I've lost those manuscripts. It would have been fun to look back at them all these years later. My parents preserved them for decades, took a bad marriage to lose them. So born in London and moved back to India by the age of two, what precipitated the move back to India? Oh, my dad never really saw saw himself as a migrant. You know, he went off to England soon after India's independence, the way in which other Keralites would have gone off to Singapore or to Calcutta or to Delhi. It, it just was a thing that people did in Kerala. Kerala was a very beautiful place, but with very little to offer by way of employment and no big industry, no big corporations, whatever. So lots of young people went out to seek their fortune elsewhere. And uh, what had happened was that his eldest brother, who had initially gone off to Bombay and worked there, had got himself an assignment in London, and he invited the younger brothers to come along. And so my my father and his two younger brothers went off by ship to England in 1948. But dad um, always saw himself as coming back to India and he, he kept looking for opportunities to return. Only one, in fact, of those of those four brothers actually remained in England. The other three came back. Uh, one died young. The eldest brother went on to found the Indian edition of Reader's Digest. So, mm. And your dad was a newspaper executive. My dad he? was with The Statesman, which ah. was a, a newspaper that at the time my dad was looking to come back to India, all their managers in India were Englishmen. But he was the locally recruited manager of the London office, and he was an Indian, one of those great paradoxes. So uh, the moment he got an opportunity to come back to India, uh, which was when the Englishman heading the Bombay office retired, uh, he leapt at it, applied for the job and was picked. And so I was all of two and a half or something when 
we came over to India. You've written about how your parents were quite free with you in terms of when your interests would be caught by different things. Why do you think they were so, I mean, lax isn't the right word, but why do you think they, they gave you that it's space? It's very unusual, Mark. And the fact is that Indian parents are very directive. Even today, mm-hmm. parents, not just of my generation, but younger than me, will tell their children what to do, what to study, and so on. And and one of the f- things that I find most uh, dismaying is actually how much talent is misdirected as a result. You will find the middle class obsession with churning out doctors and engineers drives a lot of people into those two professions who shouldn't be there. (laughs) My father was fortunately a very liberal-minded man. I think it's partly because of of just love. He had almost blind faith in me, uh, which fortunately I think I didn't disappoint him too much. You know, it's a style of parenting that the child has also got to be worthy of. I followed his model and I gave my kids um, uh, practically no direction which way to go and they both ended up as writers. So (laughs) I was going to say, did that work? Something wrong. (laughs) Because I can see that going horribly, horribly wrong. That's right. So when did the interest in statehood, in in nation building, kind of occur to you? I was born a decade, just less than a decade after independence. So the years that I was growing up in India were years in which the whole national project was an active subject of inquiry, research, discussion in the newspapers, debates, speeches, you name it. In fact, what was striking about that whole thing was when I was a kid, I remember the big phrase was, national integration. There was a great consciousness that we were a large, diverse country Mm. and we needed to be integrated much more across the religious divide, which had just partitioned the country, across caste, communal, regional, linguistic and other divides. And what's remarkable now looking back at it is how well we've succeeded. I mean, I, I never really thought we'd fail, but I can see why so many Western writers in the 60s, 50s and 60s wrote about India's imminent disintegration. It just seemed in theory to be such an impossible project. So to those playing at home that don't necessarily know the history and I guess the complexity of India, there is, as you say, there's caste, there's religions, there's Hindus, there's Muslims, and, and of course, Jewish population along uh, Christians, the coast as well. Sikhs, Jains, Buddhists, you name it, we've got them all. So why and how did it work? Well, it worked, I think, partly because of this common civilizational space that everybody's had for 3,000 years. Even the Christian presence in India didn't come in with the British. We had St. Thomas the Apostle, doubting Thomas of the Bible, showing up in Kerala a few years after the, the resurrection, as it were. And when he landed on the shores of Kerala, according to oral legend, he was welcomed on shore by a flute-playing Jewish girl. It was a civilization that was welcoming, that was accepting. Hinduism had enormous divisions within it, particularly of caste. But there was also at the same time a great sense of acceptance. The idea was, you know, I'm free to be who I am, you're free to be who you are. It was a very Hindu idea. And I think my father imbibed that very much because when I I think about my father praying every single day after his bath, uh, which was an unfailing ritual throughout his life, never once did he oblige me to join him. Uh, The idea in the Hindu faith is that you must find your own truth. And that's essentially the, I think, the great strength intellectually and uh, as a culture that we have in our civilization is this desire to find our own truth, the desire to actually reach out and and see our neighbor as just finding a different path to the same good thing. Swami Vivekananda, great Hindu philosopher, said that uh, just as all rivers flow to the same ocean, 
so to all fates lead ultimately to the divine. So, it, you know, we accept, we, we don't just tolerate other fates, we accept other fates as as true and as valid as our own, which is an extremely healthy way to live. We should say, though, that as effective as that has been, particularly compared to other countries around the world, it's obviously hard won and, and some battles were easier than others. In terms of making a cohesive society, if you look back over the history of India, where would you say was the steepest learning curve? Well, there have been many. And in fact, the saddest thing is right now there seems to be a downslide from what had already been accomplished in terms of national unity. The steepest learning curves took place across two or three of the major important fault lines. The first one that was tackled immediately after partition, or at the time of partition, was the religious divide. Mm. Pakistan had been carved out of India off the stooped shoulders of India by the British as a state for India's Muslims. But the Indian nationalists never fell into the logic of saying, well, now you've created a state for Muslims, what remains is a state for Hindus. Far from it. They said, no, we've always fought for an independence for all Indians, and we will not buy your logic. So you think religion determines your nationhood? You can take your bigotry and go off. We will remain a country for everybody. Uh, and that didn't take a steep learning curve because it was a continuity of the ethos of the independence movement. The second learning curve was on caste, particularly untouchability, which was an odious practice that eliminated 15% of the population from normal social interactions, economic opportunities, and decent life. And fortunately, one person from this community, which is now called the Dalit community, was our James Madison, was the chairman of our drafting committee of parliament, of the constitution. And he wrote in the world's first and farthest reaching affirmative action program, which reserved not just opportunities, but outcomes for these former untouchables, the Dalits, uh, giving them jobs in government, places in universities and medical institutions and so on, and even reserve seats in parliament. So of our 545 seats in parliament, the lower house, 85 are reserved for uh, these castes and tribes who are listed in a schedule of the constitution, so they call scheduled castes and tribes. And if you happen to hail from an area where that for the, for that 10-year period, the seat is reserved for somebody of that community, and you're not from that community, you can't compete. You've got to go off and find some other place to run from. The third fault line was the linguistic fault line, uh, because the British provincial boundaries didn't correspond to anything cultural in India, but much more to the accident of British conquest. So the provinces the British had drawn up included people of multiple linguistic and cultural backgrounds. Uh, there was an agitation during the first 10 years of independence for reorganizing our states, not provinces, but states as linguistic units where people of the same language could be grouped together administratively and politically in one entity. Initially, the government resisted that, fearing that could lead to a sort of vociferous tendency, a balkanization of India. But in fact, in the end, it turned out to be a very wise thing to do because the states are much more homogeneous entities and therefore much easier to administer. And they're unified by language, not by religion, caste, or any other division, but by language, which is a natural, a more natural unit of, of human interaction. So in 1956, nine years after independence, the states were reorganized on, on linguistic lines. And that was the third big state uh, learning curve. So just to come back to your life for a second, you are a passionate ambassador for Indian and Indian power throughout the world. But when the move to get, step into politics first happened, you didn't step into Indian politics first. You went and worked in the UN. Why go work for an international organisation? Why not start in your own government? Well, first of all, 
there were circumstances. When I was sort of coming of age, India had just gone through what was called a state of emergency when Mrs. Indira Gandhi for 22 months essentially suspended our freedom, censored the press, locked up opposition politicians. It was a deeply disillusioning time for anybody who wanted to serve the government. If I had turned 21 at some other time, I would have probably taken the exams. But this was not a time when you wanted to serve the government. And I was always interested in international affairs. Had I taken the exams, I would have opted for the diplomatic service and not the administrative service, because world affairs has always fascinated me. Don't ask me why. Uh, maybe the accident of my birth or whatever, but I've always been curious about the rest of the world and about India's place in it. So um, I could have taken um, the foreign service option. The next best thing seemed to me to work on the world stage, but internationally rather than at home. When the UN High Commissioner for Refugees offered me a slot, I really thought I'd do it for a year or two, see a bit of Europe, which I'd never seen, put some money in the bank and go back to India. That one-year uh, contract, in fact, I started off at the UN with a one-month contract, ended up becoming 29 years. I look back on it with a great deal of of affection and pride because I know that I was able to do a lot of things that left my little smudgy thumbprints on the footnotes of the pages of history. The interaction of nations and particularly around conflicts at the UN is famously complex. Some would even say fraught. And I'm wondering what surprised you about the way the UN operates? Well, I think uh, the first uh, thing you realize, of course, is that your masters are sovereign governments. The UN is not a law unto itself. It's owned by its member states. And what the UN can do is what the member states are prepared to support it to do, are prepared to agree on doing, are prepared to pay for. And in, when it comes to peacekeeping, which I worked in, what they're prepared to supply troops for. So all of those things mean that the United Nations wasn't a supranational body. It was a club of member states. And that's the first thing that many people outside don't really realize. So the UN you know, reflects the world, its its disagreements, its inequalities, its its frustrations. And it's, it's, it's also true that some countries are more powerful than others. Um, uh, there's no question that the more powerful the country is in the real world, the more weight it exercises in the UN. That's also logical. But it, I think, played a couple of very, very indispensable roles. First of all, because everybody belonged to it, it had an unrivaled capacity to get the world's countries together to apply their minds to issues of common interest. So where there may be divisions in areas like peace and security, that was sometimes problematic. But on issues such as the environment, aging, urbanization, the clash of civilization, go through a whole list of issues where the UN is the place where it's at, where the state of the world's thinking gets crystallized and, and initiatives are taken. We wouldn't be environmentally conscious today if it wasn't for the UN Stockholm conference 40 years ago, and then the Rio conference and all of that. But when it comes to peacekeeping, yeah, very often you can't, you know, if countries don't want a problem solved or don't agree on the terms of how it should be solved, then you're not going to be able to solve it. And all you can do is hold the peace as best you can. But Dag Hammarskjöld, the second UN Secretary General, 60 years ago said it brilliantly. He said, look, the United Nations wasn't created to take mankind to heaven, but rather to save humanity from hell. And I think that's that's very, very good. Sometimes what you can do with the UN is prevent things from getting worse, from preventing the world from going to hell in a handbasket, as the Americans like to say, but rather ensuring that at least you can manage 
conflict and contain a conflict. I mean, one of the things the UN really accomplished that no one gives it credit for is that there was no Third World War. There were two within a span of 25 years. And, you know, the First World War ends in 1919, and within 20 years, the second one started. So we're very lucky that what many people feared would happen, a Third World War between the West and the Soviets, never happened. And that's largely because the UN provided not only a mechanism to contain conflict, but also through peacekeeping, we used the military assets of the small smaller and medium powers to actually prevent a situation from igniting a global conflagration. Uh, imagine if there was no UN, you could find any local thing, a conflict over, over a liberation war against somebody, whatever, becoming an east-west fight because each country would have had its proxies and they would have marched in. We almost saw that happening in Korea at the beginning of the 50s, soon after the UN was established. And it took the UN to defuse 25 other conflicts thereafter that could have got even worse than the Korean War. In your time in the UN, there must have been some moment where you didn't achieve something that you would have wanted. Oh, yeah. Oh, lots of frustrations. What stands out? What's the one? Was there one that kept you up at night? Oh, well, the one that literally kept me up at night was the former Yugoslavia. I was saddled with the management and the peacekeeping department of that entire crisis from the very beginning. I uh, traveled through the front lines when Bosnia was still at peace, but but Croatia had rebelled against Serbia. I actually nearly stepped on minefields, avoided being sniped at, witnessed bombing of positions I had recently vacated. It was quite, quite an adventurous time, a Finnish colonel and I going through the front lines to meet people on both sides. And then I got to manage the operation from the in the peacekeeping department, which meant traveling frequently there, but also being in daily contact with our generals and officers in the on the ground during the following six years. It really did give me 18 hour days. It sort of my, my writing career took a bit of a back seat for a while as I as I had to focus on 18 hour days dealing with this crisis. And of course, it was the kind of job where if a bomb went off in a Sarajevo marketplace, I was the guy the Situation Center woke up to give the bad news to, and then I had to figure out what to do next and so on. So it, it really was tough. And what was frustrating was you worked really hard we had to do the diplomacy with all the members of the Security Council, with the other key players, with the countries themselves engaged in the conflict, manage the, the actual operations as well. And at the same time, because member states couldn't agree on one clear way forward or out of the dilemma, you knew that for all those 18-hour days and lack of sleep and your family missing you and everything else, that the blood was still continuing to flow. It was flowing at a much smaller pace than it had before you came in, but it was still flowing. And that became a enormously frustrating one. You know, in my refugee work before that, because I'd begun my first 11 years as the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, I could put my head to the pillow at night knowing the things I'd done during the day had made a real difference to real human beings' lives. And when I ran the refugee operation in Singapore, I could see and meet the very people whose lives I was transforming. So, uh, you know, I, I can look back with tremendous satisfaction in that period. With peacekeeping, I can look back with tremendous satisfaction of the effort I made, and I did make an enormous amount of effort. But did I end the war? No. Did I stop the killing? Not enough. Did I fundamentally alter any of the stakes? No. I essentially managed and contained and coped, but I didn't resolve anything. That can be very frustrating. Fast forward a little bit, you have a political career, a very successful political career in India, but I want to talk about the relationship between India and the UK because for you, that's a relationship that starts at birth <laughs> and if somebody was listening to this right now and didn't know what you looked like, you speak with an accent that a lot of people would readily identify as an English accent. It's, it's the English that they taught us, I suppose, or they taught my <laughs> teachers because I was too young. 
I didn't have too many English uh, Englishmen or women teaching me, but I did have Indians who'd learned their English from the English, and that's what I learned. So when did you first clock that colonialism, this thing that was lionized amongst many of the colonies, wasn't quite all it was cracked up to be? I don't know, from a very young age, and, and you know, it's difficult to explain why. I was always fascinated by history, mm-hmm. and I was so captivated by the so-called modern period, the British rule, uh, that I read beyond the textbooks, which is something that very few kids do if they have any sanity, instead of going out and having fun. Well, mind you, I was lucky in the sense that I I, I was in high school at a time when there was no television. Um, uh, the Nintendo and computers and PlayStation and so on were not even a gleam in some inventor's eye. So um, uh, reading was my principal diversion, my principal entertainment, and my principal education. So um, I did, in fact... Quite recently, a relative found a notebook I had kept when I was in the 10th grade full of essays that were not written for the teachers, but for myself on modern Indian history. I was just obviously very, very much taken by the subject. And I think obviously one forms one's views. You know, I mean, look, ultimately, it didn't matter whether I was born in England or could speak English well or whatever. I looked in the mirror and I saw an Indian. And for me, therefore, the way people like me were treated by people like them inevitably... um, prompted a a reaction. When people talk about the contribution that the British Empire made to colonies, either here or in India, there's a one curious recurring answer, and that's about the railways. At least the British left the railways. The Portuguese didn't. Uh, You have an interesting argument for why that isn't necessarily the great contribution that some claim it to be. Well, you know, the railways and all the other things the British or their apologists like to take credit for, uh, the rule of law, political democracy, parliamentary institutions, for that matter, even tea and cricket Mm -hmm. and the English language, all of these things were brought in by the British, starting with the railways, for their own benefit and their interests to enhance their profits or to increase their control. And the result, therefore, is that when you look at what happened, the story that emerges is very different from the one they like to tell. When railways were to be built in India, the rationale given by the Brits at the time was twofold. First of all, uh, you construct railways in order to extract resources from the countryside and take them to the ports in order to ship them to England. So it was pure loot. And the second thing was to be able to send troops into the hinterland to quell any potential unrest on the part of the restless natives. So that's that's basically what the railways were conceived for. On top of that, they were built as a gigantic colonial scam to the profit of the British investors in those railways and paid for by poor, long-suffering Indian taxpayers. So what happened was that the British investors were guaranteed double the rate of interest of the highest paying British government security. So it was the single most profitable thing you could do in London between about the 1840s and 1870s was invest in the Indian railways. As a result, they spent money like crazy. Every mile of Indian railway cost nine times more than the same mile of of railway being built in the US or Canada at the very same time. And that is simply because, as they cheerfully described it, it was private profit at public risk. The private profit was British and the public risk was all Indian. They ran it too as a racist enterprise, except for the most menial jobs, every significant position from station masters of decent sized stations, all the way to engine drivers, ticket collectors, and of course the chairman of the railway board had to be a white European. That went on right up to the First World War when so many white Europeans were killed. There was a sudden shortage of them for the Indian railways. But till then, that's how they ran it. Similarly, the fare structure. British companies paid the lowest freight rates in the world. But 
the third-class Indian passengers sitting on wooden slats that pass for benches and third-class compartments, they paid the highest passenger rates in the world. So it was exactly the opposite of what the British like to pretend it was. It was only after independence that India changed things around. Unfortunately, we may have, may have gone too far in the other direction. Now our passenger rates are so low and our freight rates are so high that companies prefer to ship their goods in lorries on our congested highways, adding to our pollution. And the, the passengers pay so little that we don't have enough money for repairing and maintaining the tracks and expanding the network, with the result there are an awful lot of accidents going on in the Indian railways these days. But having said all of that, don't sort of blame us for making the best of what was left behind, but don't give them credit as if they intended it for us. They, they didn't. There is an argument that exists out there that financially, economically, and in terms of its modernization, India is better off for uh, British colonialism. What's your response to that that argument? And just in the pure numbers, was India financially better off on the day of independence than it was before the British landed? Much worse off. In fact, in 1700, India was the richest country in the world, accounting for 27% of global GDP. In 1800, it was 23% of global GDP. By 1947, it was down to 3% or just over. Why? Because Britain had ruled India for the benefit of Britain. They conducted depredations, loot, extortionate taxation, and whatever they did, they drained the resources back to England. They built mansions in London rather than actually investing in the country they were trying to rule. As late as 1930, for example, the American historian Will Durant found the British were spending so little on education in India that the total expenditure on everything from sort of kindergarten to university put together was less than half the high school budget of the state of New York. When the British left in 1947, the literacy rate in India was below 17% and only 8.8% for women. The mortality rate was so high that life expectancy of an Indian born in 1947 was 27 years old, and 90% of the Indian population was living below the poverty line. So this is the accomplishment to Britain. And besides that, in the 47 years from 1900 to 1947, the net rate of economic growth in India was 0.01%. You want to look at today's figures, you will find, for example, that life expectancy has gone from 27 to approaching the biblical three-score and 10. That literacy has gone from that 17% to 79%. Most Indians think that isn't good enough because that's 21% of our people who still can't read and write. But look where we started from. The poverty line, we still have 26% of our population below the poverty line. But that's, and that's 26% too many. But we started off with 90. So if that is all the case, you gave a very famous speech that uh, has gone viral on the internet and you said you would be happy if the British Empire only paid one pound per year of reparations. Are you lowballing the empire? <laughs> That's because you can't quantify the damage they've done. The financial damage is only a small part of the damage. How do you place a value on the lives of the 35 million Indians who died totally unnecessary deaths in British-made famines? Famines that were created and exacerbated by British policy. You can't put a value on that. How do you quantify the moral debt that Britain owes for, for its centuries of, of completely subjugating a foreign people? I mean, the truth is that any amount you calculate uh, that's credible would not be payable, and any amount that's payable would not be credible. So I'd rather go for a symbolic one pound because that actually speaks of atonement rather than of reparations. I'm curious about what lessons you think other countries should take away from the Indian experience. Famously, uh, Australia was declared terra nullius when the British arrived here as though there wasn't a continuous culture that had been here for a millennia. I'm wondering if you can take the lessons you've learned 
from British independence. And it's obviously a very different country with a very different set of issues. But I'm wondering what, what lessons would you pass on to the other colonies? Well, the first lesson is there's absolutely no nothing good one can say about colonialism for the most part, but that it's particularly bad when it involves a country coming into a flourishing civilization and destroying it or grafting itself on top of it. And then there's the hypocrisy of the British claim they were acting in the name of free trade, but they destroyed the free trade in which India had thrived. India had been the world's leading exporter of cottons, linens, and muslins for 2,000 years, going back to the Roman Empire, as we know from debates in the Roman Senate, recorded by Pliny the Elder, about how much Roman gold was being sent off to India because of the tastes of Roman women for Indian muslins and linens and cottons. And that free trade was destroyed by the British to impose their own at the point of a gun. So when you look at all of that, it's it's a pretty grim story. Now, I'm not sure one can lightly generalize because, say, by comparison, a place like Singapore was a barren rock. And it was built up by the British using, by the way, forced Indian labor Mm. through much of the middle of the 19th century. Indians were transported for minor offenses to the straight settlements, Singapore and, and Malacca, and made to do the construction and the building there. But still, the fact is that arguably what Singapore is today owes much more to the British than, say, India owes the British for what it is today, other than the fact that what was there before the British was so systematically smashed that reviving it and restoring those traditions is a huge challenge. There's a debate in Australia about whether or not there's value in crafting a treaty with our Indigenous people. Do you think there's value in, in that kind of symbolism? Do you think that that offers something back to a nation? Yes, I think it might well do. Mind you, as you rightly said, the people to answer that question are the Indigenous people themselves and their representatives. They should say whether this is the way in which they'd like to go forward. I also understand there's a, a lot of people in Australia who appear to be white, have Aboriginal blood as well, and what their stakes are in this and how they feel about their twin identities also has to be taken into account. But broadly speaking, I think some sort of moral atonement is good in every in every civilization. In the case of the Brits, for example, I, I, I've urged them to teach colonial history. It's odd that you can do A-levels in history in Britain without actually learning a line of colonial history. Mm. Tell the kids the truth. I think you should do the same in Australia. Actually, we have the opposite. We only have colonial history. We don't have Indigenous history. True, but, but, but we, we really do need, I think, in, in every society to get the whole story, the unvarnished truth, as much as you can resurrect it and portray it. Uh, another thing I've told the, the, the Brits is to have museums. It's amazing. London is full of museums, including many of which are just full of stolen artifacts from the colonies. There's an imperial war museum, but there's no imperial colonialism museum. There is no museum to empire. There's no place that tourists and foreigners and school kids from Britain can go and just see for themselves the exhibits of what was done uh, by the British to these foreign peoples. The English people who read Jane Austen, completely innocent of knowledge of the fact that the lifestyle she depicts was financed entirely by the sweat on the brows of black Caribbean slaves on the sugar plantations. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I think the Brits need to wake up to. There's even a statue in the heart of London to the animals that aided the British war effort. And there is no statue to the 1.3 million Indians who fought in the First World War, the 1.7 million Indians who fought in the Second World War, or the more than 150,000 who died in those two world wars for the Allies. And it's just shameful. I mean, they've just brushed all this under the carpet and very convenient historical amnesia and they console themselves with gauzy, romanticized soap operas like Indian Summers and the Far Pavilions and so on that makes uh, the Raj some sort of you know, boy's own adventure, uh, forgetting completely the sordid reality of what they did uh, as well to the people of India. So I think all of this is very important to confront and I hope that in, in Australia too and other colonies there will be a reckoning with history. 
Of course, right now the relationship between India and the UK is at a fascinating standpoint where in the wake of Brexit, Britain renegotiating many of their major trading partners, including India. Now, the Indian economy is massive, to put it mildly. Do you feel like there's an inversion of role to a degree where Britain certainly needs access to that set of economic terms? Yes. Well, I actually made this point in the Indian context because the week my book came out in India, uh, Theresa May was about to make her first visit. At that point, very anxiously programming trips to Bombay and Bangalore and Hyderabad to uh, look for Indian investment in her presumed to be faltering post-Brexit economy. And as I said to the Indian audiences, look, you don't need to take revenge upon history. History is its own revenge. That's, that's what that particular visit signaled to Indians and to people like myself. But in the end, you know, I I don't think that anybody in today's India is looking to settle scores with Britain. Don't get me wrong. Why not? Now would be the perfect time. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm simply, simply because I quote Nehru in the book as having said to Winston Churchill, who asked him, how is it that despite us imprisoning you for 10 years of your life, that you bear us no bitterness and rancor? And Nehru replied, I was taught by a great man, Mahatma Gandhi, never to fear and never to hate which I thought was a rather good statement because we are very much a forgive and forget culture. My difference with this is I think forgiveness is all all to the good because, you know, nursing hatred and grudges and bitterness actually hurts the hater more than the hated. But to be honest, uh, I'm not so keen on the forget part of forgive and forget. Forgive, but don't forget. Remember the past, embrace it whole, but leave it in the past. I often say to young people in India, if you don't know where you're coming from, how will you appreciate where you're going? It's only to appreciate where you're going, not to be resentful, not to seek revenge, not to rewrite the past, because the past can't be rewritten, but just to go on knowing about your own civilizations and society's past, just as an individual would want to know about their parents' past or their grandparents or whatever, that much of our recent past we should be conscious of. If you don't want any real reparations, what would an ideal detente be for you? Well, I think what would have a magnificently cleansing effect is an apology. And I didn't even tell you what's, what's the best time for it. Uh, on the 13th of April, 2019, will be the centenary of what I consider the worst atrocity of the British Raj in India, the Jallianwala Bagh massacre, sometimes known as the Amritsar massacre. And it's not purely in terms of the numbers of people killed, because in fact, the British killed 100,000 people in Delhi alone in putting down the revolt of 1857. And the very, very many fewer lives were lost in Jallianwala Bagh. But it's the whole panoply of circumstances surrounding it. You see, India had supported the First World War effort. Even Mahatma Gandhi had called for support because they had been led to believe by the British that they'd be rewarded with what was called responsible self-government, which everyone assumed would be dominion status as enjoyed by the so-called White Commonwealth of Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, and so on. Well, the British broke their word. They didn't keep their promise. And in fact, they reimposed the wartime era emergency restrictions of freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech on the Indian people. At that point, protests broke out right across British India, and the British in effect declared martial law. They didn't call it that, but they sent general to stamp down on the protests. So Brigadier General Reginald Dyer shows up in Amritsar, the second most populous town of Punjab, decrees that people are not allowed to gather in more in groups of more than five and so on. But what he didn't realize was there was a big Punjabi spring festival of Baisakhi. And he heard of a gathering of large numbers of people in a walled garden, Jalingwala Bagh. 
Now, these were men, women and children, large numbers of women and children, totally unarmed, come together in many cases from surrounding villages, almost certainly unaware of the prohibitory orders and completely and totally unarmed and defenseless inside this walled garden. Dyer lands up there with his troops. He doesn't issue a warning, doesn't fire a warning shot. He just orders his troops to open fire into the soon wailing, screaming and stampeding crowd, except that he positions his soldiers at the only entrance and exit to the garden, the one gate there is. And as he explains later, that made the the people's much easier targets because as they were fleeing towards the gate, they got shot more easily. He says not a single bullet was wasted. Something like 1,650 rounds were fired and every bullet hit somebody. The British admitted to 379 dead, the rest injured. The Indians claimed a larger number of people dead. But what was grotesque was everything that followed. Dyer barred the gates and would not allow families and relatives to tend to the dead, the dying, the wounded. So they lay for 24 hours in the hot sun, rotting and dying in many cases, moaning themselves to death. Indians were forced to crawl on their bellies in an adjoining street. And if they so much as lifted their heads while crawling, the heads were bashed in by British staves. After all of this, condemnations inevitably broke out. The House of Commons uh, passed a resolution disapproving of Dyer's conduct, but the House of Lords immediately passed a counter-resolution praising him. And a collection was carried out to reward Dyer for his actions, which raised the equivalent in today's money of a quarter of a million pounds sterling, which was presented to him with a bejeweled sword, while that flatulent voice of Victorian imperialism, Rudyard Kipling, hailed him as the man who saved India. So the whole thing, the betrayal of the First World War, the repression, the brutality of the massacre, the racism and indifference to Indian suffering that followed it, and then the self-justification and the reward, that all together makes this, to my mind, the single worst atrocity of the British Empire. Imagine if on the centenary of that occasion, a member of the British royal family, because don't forget everything was done in the name of the Crown, would come to Amritsar. And ideally go on their knees in Jalimwala Bagh and beg forgiveness, express remorse for what was done there and by extension all the wrongs done for 200 years. It would have such an amazingly cleansing effect on the moral uh, argument on both sides. Whether it'll happen, I don't know, but I certainly would love to see that happen. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mark. All right, It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House. This season features guests from the Antidote program and it was hosted by me, Mark Fennell. There you go. Uh, it's produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hiraway, music mix by Evan Williams. We were recorded by Josh Craig, mastered by Cullum Jensen-McKinnon and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey. And we will catch you on the next episode of It's a Long Story. Goodbye. Goodbye.